So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. So if you would turn there in your Bibles. And I'm going to adjust this real quick because it's still very... Quan, could you turn this down just a little bit? Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay, Luke chapter 19. Um, I know it's not Christmas time, but I want you to think about Christmas time. And I want you to think about the passages of Scripture that we give attention to at Christmas time. Think of Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph is, uh, Joseph sees a vision. Um, he's about to divorce his fiancée because she is pregnant. And the angel of the Lord says, don't do that. The angel Gabriel, I should say, does, uh, says, don't do that. We think of Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men come from the east, and they visit Jesus, who most likely is a little older than being born. They're living in a house. But we also think of Luke chapters 1 and 2. This is the book that we're studying. I want you to think about Luke 2 and the circumstances behind the king's birth. Right? The king was born into very regal settings, wasn't he? I mean, he had the nicest of the nice. He had the best of the best when he was born, right? I mean, that stable was, you know, top-notch, five-star, you know, Yelp review. It was the nicest of the nice with all of the other animals that were probably nearby. No, it was not a fitting birth for a king, was it? It was something that was actually uh, in direct contradiction to who was born. And not only that, the guests that came and saw him, they were the, the bourgeois. They were the highest of the high in society, right? Well, no. They were the shepherds. They were commoners. Why bring this up? Because Luke makes it a point in his book to bring attention to how the king entered the world. And he did it in very humble means. And Luke also takes careful attention to show how the king entered Jerusalem. And it was also by very humble means. When we read in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, we're going to see the fulfillment of a lot of Jewish prophecy. In fact, I'd, uh, just uh, We're going to be in Luke 19, but for a moment, keep your finger there and turn to Zechariah. Zechariah. The easiest way to find Zechariah is just start at the beginning of the New Testament and work backwards. Okay? So you have Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. And then you have Zechariah. And if you would, turn to chapter 9 of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This Instance in Luke, if you uh, go ahead and you can go back to Luke chapter 19, this instance is a fulfillment of that prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Meaning that 
we are witnessing here in this story something that Jews had been looking forward to for ages. And it was going to take place in their sight. Early in, earlier in chapter 19, we actually saw this this morning, the Jews were assuming that the kingdom of heaven was about to take place. The kingdom was about to be established. They were anticipating it. It was coming. It was immediate, imminent. And Jesus shares the parable to tell them that no, there will be a delay. And the reason why there was a delay is because the king, namely the servants or the, the, the people that the king was to be ruling over, rejected him. You see, Luke's theme in his gospel was one where Jesus ministered to the lowly, where many miracles, many of, much of his teaching was to women, to those who are lower in society, to Gentiles. Yet Jesus himself was lowly. We talked about his birth. Earlier in Luke, he, Jesus speaks of his living conditions. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man, fulfillment of prophecy, what? Has nowhere to lay his head. Luke was supported by different men and women in his ministry. Luke shows that Jesus did not live a wealthy, extravagant lifestyle, even though he was the king. And so now you have really this tension of the king not really living like the king, yet being the king. And that's what I want us to see tonight as we look in Luke chapter 19. That even though Jesus lived a lowly human life, he was still the king. And in this particular instance, I want us to see that Jesus was in perfect control of everything that was going on. Perfect control. He had absolute certainty as to what was going to happen, how it was going to take place, when it was going to transpire. There was nothing that was out of order. It was just as it was supposed to be. And so as the details unfold here in the final week of Jesus' life, we see that he is in complete control of what was about to happen. Now, how do we see that? Well, first of all, we see that just given the details of Jesus in that this was a kingly event, a kingly event. So what do you mean by that? Well, let's look here in chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After he had said these things... Jesus was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, Well, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, those so those who were, sent, who were sent went away, sorry, that was wordy, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And so they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. What do we see here? Well, we see, first of all, that Jesus, as king, still demonstrates 
a knowledge that was true of him being the son of God, yet son of man. He knew exactly what was going to happen in detail. He knows that there's a cult, and he knows that there's an owner, and that this cult hadn't been sat on, and he sends his disciples, two of his disciples, to get it, and they retrieve it, and they bring it back, just as he said. And what else happens? Well, verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. This was an activity done for uh, kings. Or, or people who had come and conquered. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, this was something that, that had, been, had, had taken place, where people were spreading their cloaks on the road. We already read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, that the Son of Man, the, the coming king, would ride into Jerusalem on the colt. We also see in verse 37, as he, was approaching, as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Saying, or shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now in my Bible, this portion is in all caps or it's indented a little bit. What does that mean? Well, in my Bible, that just simply means that they are quoting from something in the Old Testament. In particular, they're quoting from Psalm 118. Why is that significant? Well, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 was called the Hallel. And the Hallel was chanted at the end of Passover. You say, okay, why is that significant? Well, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem at Passover. So these people, these Jews, many of which were pilgrims having come from afar to celebrate Passover, were seeing prophecy brought about, foretold. It was foretold and these events were coming true. And they were recognizing it. That Jesus coming in on a colt. Now, in John chapter 12, in verse 13, we also read of a couple other things taking place. In particular, we have events where people are waving palm branches, right? They're waving palm branches, which was associated with, with a, a regal nature. We have them crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which simply means save now. They recognized that this person was a king, that he was a leader. He was the one that was being prophesied about. And yet, and yet it wasn't enough. And when I say it wasn't enough, it wasn't as if they had to earn more. It wasn't a true devotion, a true following. To be sure, as we see in verse 37, you have a crowd of the disciples praising God joyfully. But you have to remember, at this point in time in Jerusalem, it was Passover. As I mentioned before, people had traveled for miles around to come and to be a part of this event. And so as this ruckus was being formed, as this, this, this uh, event was taking place, and as Jesus is riding in on a colt, people are wondering what's going on, and they're seeing the significance, and they have Passover in the back of their brain, and they're thinking, is this it? 
And so they're crying out and they're acting as if Jesus really is the king that they're waiting for. But the fact is, is that they were waiting for something different. You see, they really weren't waiting for a king to save them from their sins. They were waiting for a king that would give them what they want. And there's a big difference between the two. We see here, though, that Jesus knew all of this. He was in complete control. We see the kingly details of this event, but there's also something else significant here. We see that this was a very public event. You say, what do you mean by public? You see, Jesus had just performed miracles in chapter 18 and was gathering an even larger crowd to follow him. And he was entering Jerusalem, like I said, at the time of Passover. This event, this event was Jesus' most public proclamation of who he was. Okay, let me say that again, because that's very significant. This event, Jesus, his entry into Jerusalem on the cult, was his most public proclamation of who he was. You remember earlier in his ministry where Jesus would perform a miracle, maybe cast out a demon or heal someone, and they would want to go out and say something, and Jesus would often say, don't tell anyone. It's not my time. Here, it was his time. And it wasn't other people making the proclamation. It was him. He was the one that arranged to have the cult. He was the one riding the colt into the city. This fact wouldn't have escaped the other rabbis. You see, no Jewish rabbi would have had the audacity to enter Jerusalem in this manner at this time. None of them would have done that because of the significance of what it would, would have meant. So Jesus was being very clear about who he was to the people that he was rightly king over. So this was a very public event. But this event was also, I, I guess you could say, a final event. Jesus had traveled all throughout Judea. He had gone from city to city to city. This was the last city that he was going to go to. Luke, in chapters 9 through 19, you have his ministry, and you see the trajectory of Christ moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, and that his eyes were set on coming to Jerusalem. Why? Because of what he had come to earth to do. So there's a finality of this. But Jesus was in complete control. He knew what this would mean. And though the crowds greeted Jesus with joy, Jesus actually entered the city, not with joy, but with grief. Look at verse uh, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he did what? He wept over it. Now, as I was studying this and preparing for this, this was kind of one of those mental pictures that I had to change. You know, we have this mental picture of the triumphal entry, which we, you know, we call the triumphal entry. And, and I don't mean to be disrespectful when I say what I'm about to say. 
But we kind of think of Jesus coming in on the donkey, much like someone would be like in the uh, you know, January 1st Rose Bowl parade. You know, where they're kind of just sitting there waving and they kind of have the smile and, hey, hello. You know, when uh, the mental picture I have of, you know, maybe watching one of a Jesus movie or something like that, he's sitting on a colt and he's just kind of looking, he has this happy face. And that is not what was happening. That wasn't happening at all. And why not? Well, look just a few verses before. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them of what? Well, of what the disciples were proclaiming. That he was king. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are some of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. If there was anyone that should have gotten who Jesus was, it was them. If there was anyone who was held responsible for seeing what Jesus did and hearing what Jesus said, it would have been them. And in fact, if there was anyone who saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem and understand the significance, it was them. But what did they do? They rebuked Jesus. To which he replies in verse 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This is actually an allusion to Habakkuk chapter 2. Where in Habakkuk chapter 2, God is about to judge Judah. And the, there's this picture of the stones of the wall crying out in judgment against wicked Judah. And so what Jesus is saying is he's actually turning that picture and instead of the stones, stones crying out in judgment, the stones would cry out in praise. Why? Because Jesus is who these people were proclaiming him to be. They were telling the truth. This is the king. Yet he entered the city, not with joy, but with grief. Verse 42, saying as he was weeping over the city, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you in one stone upon, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What's he saying? He's saying that he knew what was in their hearts. Their joy was for what they thought he would bring them, an earthly deliverance. Instead, he had come them to bring, he had come to bring them deliverance from something greater, their sin. And they rejected that. They wanted delivered, but not the deliverance that he offered. Now think of that. Think of a king entering his kingdom. And his subjects making demands on him as to what he should do for them. Think of that. You're the king. Save us. As opposed to, you're the king. We need to be saved. 
You see, the king sets the agenda. The king is the one that calls the shots. But a king that enters a city in this fashion, with humility, the king that lived the life that he lived, being born in Nazareth, I mean, don't you remember Bartholomew? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Yet, this was the king that they were still responsible to serve, that they were still responsible to be subject to. We see Jesus being in control of the timing, the public nature, the fact that he was the king, the finality, and then finally, the message. He was in control of the message. What do I mean by that? The way he entered and the manner that he responded to the crowds shows the intent of God's plan. You see, Jesus never stopped being at the hub of God's plan. This was not a former or a formal or a royal entrance to display power. It was designed to show humility and servitude. Humility and servitude. Keep your fingers here and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And some of you who uh, have studied the Bible for a while, you might know where I'm going with this. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your translation may say selfishly grasped, and that will be accurate. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This is what Jesus, this was the message that he was bringing. This is why he was entering the city. This is what he had come to do. To die. To give his life for the people that rejected him. This was a king unlike any other. I mean, every once in a while, we get the opportunity to see, um, uh, you know, the way a monarchy works. Uh, I'm guessing here pretty soon, you know, the, the king in England recently passed away, the queen is 99, I believe. Um, but pretty soon here, I'd say within the next decade or so, we're probably going to see a coronation. Now that is foreign to us Americans. You know, we vote every four years and, you know, people give up their power. Even when they get voted in twice, they say, okay, I'm done. Next guy in. Kings, that, it doesn't work that way. They're in power until they die or they get kicked out, and, you know, usually forcefully. But a coronation is not something that is low-key. It's like regal. And not just in England, but around the world. You read of these just immense, these, these, these 
opulent, this fancy, you name it, the, you know, the, pick the word that, that describes just so ostentatious, so big of these coronations. And, and this king enters the earth in a barn among farm animals to a very young couple and the guests are shepherds and then he enters what is to be the capital of the kingdom, Jerusalem, but he enters on a colt. And he, he, he and he's weeping. And he's crying out in love for the people that praise him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. What kind of king is this? The fact of the matter is, he's still a king. In fact, he's the king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we're in Philippians chapter 2, we keep reading in verse 9, for this reason also God, what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The response of Jesus to Jerusalem was a picture of one final offer, and with the Pharisees rebuking Jesus, and with the citizens coming for their immediate needs met, and not what the king wanted, we see the rejection complete. And so we see the events now turning to the death of Jesus. Now we're one week away. This is our king, and he's in control. None of this, again, took him by surprise. None of this was somehow out of scope. I think if we were in control, we may have done it a little bit differently. And as we see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we see Jesus entering in a way that was so unlike who his person was from the standpoint of being God in the flesh. We see that he was never any less in control. Why is that significant? It's because we often assume that when he is in control, or better yet, when we are in control, things should be the way that we think they ought to be. And when they don't go the way that we want them to, then we act, often, as if God isn't in control. I mean, in essence, it's a glorified temper tantrum. When things don't go our way, is God still in control? I mean, it's as if when we complain, we treat God in such a way, 
It's, it's like he forgot how to do his job. God knows how to do his job. He's really good at it. He's perfect at it. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters as a king, but not in the way that we might think a king ought to enter. And he goes about things a certain way that might not be the way that we would think. And, but he's still the king. And so, too, if he is our king, then he gets to have complete control. He gets to call the shots. He gets to determine how this life is going to go. We are called to submit and to obey. As these disciples called out in chapter 19, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Man, that sounds an awful lot like the angels in Luke 2, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's the king. He comes in the name of the Lord. He's in control. And that's still the case today. I look at this and I see a circumstance that, I mean, it's a head scratcher. Yes, it fulfills prophecy. But as these Israelites, as these, these Jews saw this king, they were expecting the kingdom to come. They were expecting the Romans to be overthrown. They were expecting immediate deliverance, and Jesus didn't offer that. And they were to submit to that. So, too, we have a king, and our greatest need isn't deliverance from all the things that make us uncomfortable or all the pains that we have. Our greatest need is to be delivered from the power of sin. And if you're in Christ, he's done that. He's delivered you from the penalty of sin. And one day he'll deliver you from the presence of sin. That's the king. Conquering our greatest enemy. Offering salvation. And that's the king that we must serve. Is he your king? Is he calling the shots in your life? I mean, seriously. I look at, we have a swath of age groups in here. We have children, we have maturity matters. Serving the king, obeying the king, often just looks like serving your parents, obeying your parents. Serving the king looks like dealing with getting older and having things not work the way they used to. And maybe being frustrated how things are changing and they weren't the way they used to be. Serving the king is putting trust in him that when I want things to go a certain way and they don't go that way, that doesn't mean that things are bad or out of control. It just means that now I'm called to trust that much more. I mean, if I can trust him with my soul for eternity, certainly I can trust him in the circumstances I'm in right now. That's the king. And as we saw this morning, that's the king that we, if you're in Christ, get to be companions with for all of eternity. That's a king. That is a king that I want to serve. I trust that to be the same for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and what he did and who he is, who did not think Service was something, or did not think 
that his position, being the second person of the Godhead, was something to be selfishly held onto, but became as one of us. Lord, so that he could bear our sin, bear our penalty. Lord, we thank you so much. And we ask, Lord, that we would regularly revisit who it is that gets to call the shots in our life. Whatever that looks like in each one of our lives, you get to be first place. Because you're the king. And we worship you. We thank you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.